We are in this book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it is the ruminations of an old man who in midlife walked away from the reality of the living God, Jehovah, and he's rehearsing the dire benefits, the horrific results of, of that decision. It's an incredibly instructive book. And this morning we come to the nadir, the low point of his desolation and depression. And this is a hard text. So I hope that it doesn't push us over the edge into despair. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, we have the background of what happened to Solomon. The Lord had told Solomon very clearly in 1 Kings 11, do not marry women who are non-members of the community of faith among my people, the Jews. But it says that Solomon disobeyed God and he married many foreign women. And the Lord says, if you do that, they will turn your hearts away after their gods. And that is what happened. 1 Kings 11 verse Four and following says, he clung to these in love. For when Solomon was old, he turned, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father was. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow Jehovah as David his father had. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. So If you've ever studied the history of India, there was in Hinduism for centuries something practiced called suti or sati. It was abolished finally in the late 1800s, but really it was a practice in the uh, agrarian areas outside the cities, probably even to today. But the practice is, is this, that when a man dies, the husband dies, Then the wife, as his body is being burnt, during the very apex of being burned, the wife will throw her body upon the burning corpse of her husband and be burned with him as a statement of devotion. And oftentimes, a man would bury a wife, and then as an old man, he would marry a very young woman. So it was was a horrible practice. It was was just, to even think about it, it boggles the mind. Solomon sanctioned that practice regarding child sacrifice. It's not like Solomon walked away from the Lord and became a, 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 a grumpy old man that pursued pleasure. He did that. But he was involved in sanctioning the worship of many foreign gods and their abominable practice. And 2 Kings 11 mentions them. Let me rehearse some of them for you. He he, he built a place for the Ashtoreth Poles. The Ashtoreth Poles were, was a goddess of sensuality that involved ritual prostitution. So, so part of the worship of Ashtoreth was, was to have sexuality in a form of worship. It's just bizarre. Saint Solomon sanctioned that. 
He sanctioned this. This man of God sanctioned that. There was a goddess named Molech, and Molech was the was the god of purifying fire. And it involved child sacrifice. They burnt their children. There's a place east of Jerusalem that historically we know is called the Valley of Thophet or Tophet. And we get the word Tophet from the word top, which means drum. And what would happen? They would take their children. They would sacrifice them on the altar of fire. And as to, to, to cover up the screams of the children, they would chant and beat drums. So it's amazing. Solomon sanctioned that. He's not just an Epicurean sitting around tasting wine and loving many beautiful foreign women. He, he, he sanctioned these bizarre practices. There was the, the God of, of Shemosh, which is the abomination of Moab, which was the God of destruction. So, so, so Solomon said we have the God of destruction, maybe the creator God. We have this and we have that. The, the, the God, the undefinable. So he was more than merely an Epicurean. He was an Epicurean who advocated and allowed horrific practices. And God wants us to flourish. He wants us to experience joy and hope in life. And when other gods rush in and idols are made in the valley of our hearts or on the height of our places of worship, and the name of the Lord is taken in vain, then the presence and power of God are not realized and his blessing goes away. See, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, know the gods before, before you, number one. Number two, don't make an idol. Number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And if you look at the larger catechism, it says, what, what, is, what is forbidden in thinking about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain? And here's the answer, in part. What is forbidden is the vain thought about God that doesn't account for the weightiness and the glory of God. In other words, when you just consider God to be there, but you don't bother about the living God that's taking his name in vain. We live in a culture, church, that doesn't atheistically in most places stand up and curse God. They will say there is a God, but the, but, but, but the weightiness of God is not endemic to their souls. And that is taking his name in vain. When the weightiness of God is not resting upon us. See, Epicurean, once again, was a guy, a person who, who pursued pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion, and it really didn't bother with the concept of God. God might exist, but it's no big deal. And so we, we come to this text and say, God is a big deal. Solomon is a man, a man who didn't just have a midlife crisis and crashed and burned. But a God-called man who was supposed to lead and provide and protect and be a pace setter. But instead, he callously violated the commands of God to his own destruction and the destruction of the people around him. And now he is reaping the result of the abandonment of God. And so chapter six is the low point. It's the nadir, it's the trench. And this is some of the things that he says in chapter six, these things. He says, I'm gonna talk about another serious tragedy. Verse two, I have no power to enjoy the good gifts of God. 
He says in chapter 3, the soul, my soul is not satisfied with all that God has given me. Verse 4, a man comes in vanity and he goes out in darkness. He says in verse 6, there's no contentment in life. Verse 7, there is no satisfaction. Verse 8, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And then he says in verse 12, our lives are ultimately nothing more than a meaningless vapor. So I'm going to give you several principles from this text and then how to avoid them. Number one, he says in verses one and two, there is no power to enjoy the good things of God. There's, there's no power to enjoy. There, there's, uh, it's like verse one and two, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavily upon mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. He says, you know, a stranger is going to come along, and after I'm dead and gone, or maybe when I'm living, they're enjoying these things, but I've lost my relish for life. I've lost the ability to embrace life. And he says, I've never met a man that could say this, but Solomon could. He says, See, he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Solomon could walk out and see a beautiful woman and say, I want to marry her. He could walk and say, those stallions, I want them. He could go to the, to the import chariot lot and get the most beautiful import chariot from distant lands and say, I want three of those. Boom, he's got them. He's got it all. And, and yet he backs up and he says, I do not have the ability to enjoy them. A stranger is. And so he's fallen into this slew of despond. He's become cynical. See, a cynical is someone who bitterly or sneeringly is distrustful and contemptuous of people and standards. Ah, what's the deal? What does it count? They have a, a contempt for acceptable standards. And that's, that's where Solomon is. He is a cynic. He's a pessimist. A few statements about a pessimist that may lighten us up a little bit. It is good to borrow money from a pessimist because he doesn't expect to get paid back. A pessimist says adulthood is looking both ways before crossing the road and then getting hit by an aeroplane. I've heard this many times. A pessimist is a well-informed former optimist. I, I don't know how many times I've read time after time that those who know the most are the most pessimistic. And I, I think apart from your belief in a great creator God who loves us and who works out things for his own glory and our good, it's easy to get there. Just read the headlines. And then this story. There was a hunter who had a pessimistic friend he wanted to impress. And so this hunter heard about a distant dog in a faraway state that could walk on water. It's not a true story, okay? And so he uh, called and found out there was indeed a dog that could walk on water. He called the man who owned the dog and he said, I wanna buy that dog. And the guy said, you can't afford it. He said, yes, I can. He named the price. He said, I'll pay that. I'll pick him up tomorrow. So he drove to a distant state, picked up the dog, took him home, went duck hunting, sure enough, the dog walked on water. And so he said, ah, 
he called his friend who he hunted with, who was a pessimist. He said, I want you to go hunting with me tomorrow. I said, sure. So they went out, dog's there. They shoot a duck, the dog retrieves, gets nothing wet but his paws. Does that all day long. His friend never says a word. They put the ducks in the back of the truck, get in the truck, going home. He looks over his friends and he smiles and he says, did you notice anything different about my dog? And he said, yeah, he can't even swim, you know? You know, we, we, we have people like that around us, you know? And that's, 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 where, Solomon, that's where Solomon lived. Solomon is at the low point. He, he, he can see, I mean, there are people, there are people who are going to say to you today, I mean, there, there, there are people who are going, they're going to walk out in this beautiful weather and say, gee, I miss summer. And really? The glass is always halfway empty. Solomon got there because he took the character of God lightly and he walked disobedience. He had no power to truly enjoy. All of us have days, John, I call them John 16, 33 days where Jesus says, I have said these things to you that, that in me you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I mean, we have tribulation. We have bad days. But we keep going because Christ is our Savior and our King, and he energizes us afresh. And the truth is that if you look historically at people who do not take the character of God with great weight, they, they, they don't finish well. I read recently, Speed read through a, or a biography of a guy, this guy. It's taken at the age of 28. The man's name is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was incredibly good looking. He was voted the most eligible bachelor about this time in America in the 1930s. He was the most wealthy man in the world. And Howard Hughes, when you read his life, he, had, he was married to a woman named Jean Peters, who was a beautiful woman for a number of years, but he had affairs with oh, Yvonne DiCarlo, Carol Lombard, um, Barbara Stanwyck, I'm trying to remember, Lana Turner, Jane Russell. I mean, you, you name it. Boom, 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 boom. Time after time after time. He could snap his fingers and say, I want that woman. Or I want to build that airplane. And he did it. He withheld nothing that he wanted. And yet, when you read his life, he spent the last few years of his life in, in a penthouse in Las Vegas. And in the last year or so, he really probably was uh, because of drug addiction out of his mind. But, but in the years preceding that, he wrote long letters that talked about business deals and trying to increase his billions. But this is what his biographer writes about Howard Hughes. In the last, in the, in the, excuse me, the two years that Howard Hughes had been in Las Vegas in the penthouse, his bed sheets had rarely been changed. The shag carpet had never been vacuumed. The end table had never been dusted. And the bathroom had never been cleaned. His closets were beginning or were beginning to fill up with mason jars filled with his own urine. And the odor of rubbing alcohol barely camouflaged the stench from his rotting teeth and his fungus contorted nails. Where his nails have this? Never bathed. He would sit there in, 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 a, in a room that was covered with heavy plastic because he feared germs. 
And he would watch the same movie time after time after time. One movie he watched time after time is called Ice Station Zebra. This, I, I've never seen it, a horrible movie. In fact, if you ever see, meet someone who says, what was your favorite movie? And they say, Ice Station Zebra Run. They have no taste. That's how our use. And the, the, the pitiful end to a life that did not deal with the weightiness of God. Let's see, I want you to hear this. Take this home. True contentment without a proper view of man, biblical anthropology, and the hope of heaven is rare. Okay? A proper view of man and the hope of heaven. This morning we had the Lord's Supper. We sang these songs about the hope of heaven, that we've been healed and forgiven and restored and anointed and we're going to heaven because of who Jesus is. That's called the hope of heaven. That allows you to grow old gracefully. That allows you to go through the valley of the shadow of death. That allows you to go through disappointments with, with grace and belief that there's a great God who watches over us. I mean, I, I, but biblical anthropology is this. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. This world is not perfect. I will not be perfect until I get to heaven. Neither will you. And this world we live in will not be perfect until the Lord Christ comes and we have the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, therefore, hear me, I do not place a weight of expectation upon people who were never meant to bear that weight. Let me explain. I love weddings. Weddings are wonderful. I've mentioned this before, but I, I, I discourage the writing of your own wedding vows because people in their youthful love and infatuation say things that just aren't going to happen. The weight they bring to that. I was in a service one time, the guy says, I'm doing my own vows, and, and this is years ago. And uh, I said, oh, okay. he's a good guy. You know, he's a good guy. But in the middle of the service, he turned and he got on his knees before his bride. All the women were going, oh. All the men were going, uh. You know, it was just, it was, it was just I could see, I'd ask everybody afterwards. And, and, and as part of his vows, he says, I promise to never be angry with you. I've often thought if they made it out of the parking lot, you know? Um, see, when I look at my wife or my kids or you, my friends, the men at my man to man table, my community group, my staff guys I love, women, and, and I demand that they do this and this and this, really I'm putting a demand upon them that they can never meet. I've got to go to Christ and then go to them. I've got to have a biblical view of man and God's gifts and then I should go to other people. That's so important. Anyway, number two. 
The, the good gifts could not satisfy. Now, Solomon really underscores two gifts. The gift of children. He said if I had a hundred children, and children were considered a great blessing from God then and now, and long life was considered a blessing. And Solomon said, if I live uh, 2,000 years. So this is what he says in verse 3. He says, if a, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child, a child that's basically born without life, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years, yet enjoy no good. Don't all go to the same place. This is the statement of a man who is bitter and angry. He said, even the good gifts don't satisfy. See, they're, 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 even, even among the most godly people, there should be an ache in our hearts after we enjoy a beautiful sunset or a wonderful meal or a warm embrace or a great vacation. And we should say, that was wonderful, but I wish it wouldn't end. That was wonderful, and yet I wish we could do more. See, that, that's, that's the longing for eternity in our hearts. That, that's a longing for the almost but not yet. And I've always thought it would be really cool to go hella skiing. I'm not a skier. I, I, I won't take it up. I'm too old. But I'm not a skier. But hella skiing is you, they take you up in a helicopter to the top of a glacier, thousands of feet up. And they either, you either get real close and they, you jump out or they can land and you get out and you put on your skis and you go down thousands of feet in powder that's never been skied during this ski season. How cool would that be? But even after doing that, you go, wow, I wish we could do it again. I wish it wouldn't end. That was great. I've been on vacations. I've been places. And this is great. And yet, so that the end yet is, 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 is God working in your heart. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But, but, but Solomon has just thrown up his hands and he says, good gifts do not satisfy. Listen to me. This is this text. If, if you don't have the hope of heaven and, and, and the reality of God resting upon you, I believe that it's easy to become angry and cynical or just grasp. You just grasp at life. You don't grow old graciously. Old, getting old is hard. Life is full of disappointments and ups and downs. Let me give an example. And this example is a, it's a, it's a hard R example. Hard R rated example. But I'm going to try to make it PG-13. But it, it is hard to do that. Solomon's father was named David. When David was at the height of his power, he fell into adultery and murder and deception. And he repented of his sin and God forgave him, but he never recovered. He never recovered. He, he, he was a lousy dad. He was, um, anyway, so uh, th that's my personal opinion. So I go to, to, to 1 Kings chapter 1. David's old. He's the king. 
He can't get warm at night. It says no matter how many blankets they put on him, David couldn't get warm. And so some of his underlings said, let's do this. Let's have a talent search in Israel for a drop-dead gorgeous young virgin who can come in and be the human blanket for King David at night. Beautiful. It says twice the text says, a beautiful young woman. Now, my, my immediate thought was two things. What's wrong with just an average-looking woman? They have the same body temperature, you know? And what, what, about, what about Bathsheba? Bathsheba's running around. That's his wife. She's old, but she still has a, she's not dead. She has a body temperature. No, 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 no. A beautiful young woman. And they find her. They're a woman named Abishag the Shunammite wins. And so Abby comes in and she sleeps with David. The Bible says, but they had no sexual intimacy. David's an old man. There's no Viagra. He's there. And so I'm thinking about it. King David, I mean, good grief. Good grief. And you know what I really feel sorry for? Abishag. Imagine sitting at the fire at night, right before they go to bed. She's bored to tears. And she, he says, Abishag, have I told you that these hands that are now arthritic at one time, I threw spears and I killed lions and bears. And she's thinking inside, yes, I've heard it a thousand times. Have I told you, Abishag, that this, this arm, this arm, one day I did this with a slingshot and I killed the champion Goliath almost 10 feet tall and cut off his head and she's thinking inside, oh boy, have I heard that. And I think it's a seedy story. I think it's a seedy story. It's the story of an old king grasping at life. And really it breaks my heart to even, to even read it. So I thought about the younger David who wrote Psalm 139. And this Psalm 139 is a God-saturated hymn. Listen to some of these verses, just a few of them. Oh, Lord, you searched me and you know me. You, you know when I sit up and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hear me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, is too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go to the lowest parts of the earth, even there. If I take the wings of the dawn and go to the far reaches of the sea, even there you are and your hand will find me. If, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me will be night, he says, oh, oh, Lord, even the darkness is not dark to you, or the night is, is as bright as the day to you. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. There's a man with a God-saturated perspective on life. And it gives you an equilibrium church. Having glorious biblical 
thoughts about the wonder of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God gives us a sense of purpose. I believe that. Solomon didn't have that. Thirdly, he had no hope in a preferable future called heaven. Last part of verse 6 and verse 12, he says, Don't, doesn't everyone go to the same place? Verse 12 says, well, for who can tell a man what will come after him under the sun? And so because he has no vision of a preferable future, he becomes callous and uncaring as he sees his life ebbing away. I think everybody should read Ecclesiastes once every three months. Fourthly, he, he's cynical regarding the one stronger. In verse 10 he says, whatever's come has already been named and what is known, what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He says, you know, there, there's a God, but he says, because I'm worshiping Molech and the Asteropos and Shamash and this and that, I, I've lost concept of, of the Lord who is my shepherd. I've lost the vision of the one who pursues me with justice and mercy and goodness all the days of my life. I, 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 I've lost that sight, and, and so I just refer to him as the one who is stronger. This is sad. This is tragic. Then fifthly, he's cynical regarding friendships. I see that in verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. He says, you know, there, there are people around me, and they just, words, 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 and it's all vanity. There's nothing they can say. It's just a chasing after smoke is trying to grasp the wind. Proverbs 18.24 was written by a younger, wiser Solomon. This is what Proverbs 18 says. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Hmm. Or Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of the enemy. He says, you know People that don't really care for you just say nice things to you, but a, a friend will tell you the truth. But now he's getting the point. He said, yeah, they're just words. So now I'll, I'll back up and I say, how can we avoid this? And let me give you five things, and I'll do this very quickly. Number one, if I'm to avoid the despair of Ecclesiastes Church, the reality of the living God must rest heavily upon me. God is glorious, almighty, all-powerful, triune, and he is my sustaining joy. My greatest thoughts must be about the goodness and the mercy of God. I was thinking about this when I was reading Psalm 50, a Psalm of Asaph, and he talks about ungodly people. And this is what he says. This is an incredible description. Verse 16, Psalm 50. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You see a thief and you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers who destroy marriages. You give your mouth free reign to speak evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, and you slander your own mother's son. Verse 21, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
God says, the problem with you is you, you have no concept that I am a holy, glorious God. You think I'm just like you. But I applaud adulterers and that I think deceit is cool. I go back to Proverbs 6. that there, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. God hates a haughty look, an arrogant spirit. God hates lying lips. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates hearts that devise wicked schemes. He hates it. He hates feet that run into evil. He hates people that sow discord among the brothers. He hates men who speak out lies. God is God. And so the problem in Psalm 50 is that they said, God is just like us. It's no big deal, man. You have glorious biblical thoughts about God. And secondly, have glorious thoughts about the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. Uh, there's a verse in the worship guide from 1 Corinthians 15. It says basically this. It says that uh, if, 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 if we believers have only hope in this life, in this day, and what we can see as an Epicurean, if we only have hope today, we are to be more pitied than all people because we are believing a lie and we are losers because the tomb was never empty. Therefore, we're basing everything on a fatuous castle made in the air. He says, but if Jesus is risen from the dead... And we can stand at the grave, we can look at cancer, we can look at tough times, we can look at death, and we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Don't lose the hope of heaven. You're, you're, you're surrounded by culture. I, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. You're out there. You're surrounded by a culture that every day breathes out Epicurean delights. I mean, have fun in a socially acceptable manner. It depends on the crew you live with that defines a socially acceptable manner. But that's what they say. And then they say, and, 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 and the reality of God, we're not denying God, but the, the reality of God rests lightly upon us. It's not really what God has said. It's what do you think God may have said in your own understanding. Don't lose the hope of heaven. Third, thirdly, because of the hope of heaven, therefore I will not demand from my wife or my kids or my friends that which they were never intended to bear. Therefore, I can enjoy the good gifts of life and I can live as a man who is in process with people who are in process because true joy awaits in heaven. Therefore, I can age gracefully and I can love embracively. Fourthly, I must remember. We had the Lord's Supper this morning. And the scripture says, do this in remembrance of me. And I was thinking about that. And I said, how, how, how do I, and I, I picked up a little thing called New Morning Mercies. It's a devotional by Paul David Tripp. It's a wonderful little devotional. And th this morning, uh, New Morning Mercies. I'm just gonna read a paragraph. He said, it's so easy to be an identity amnesiac. Just forget. He said, it's so easy to forget who you are in Christ and what you have been given as his child. It's so easy to shop horizontally for what you've already been given vertically. What a great statement. To shop 
horizontally for what you've already been given vertically, acceptance and love and embrace. It's so easy to give in to fear and to give way to shame or to allow yourself to be weakened by guilt because you forgot the present benefits of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's so easy in the hardships of life, and we all have them, to forget that nothing is powerful enough to separate you from the love of, of, of the Lord. When you are struggling, it's so easy to forget that God gave you his son. He will also give you everything else you need. It's so easy to fail to live in light of the fact that Jesus didn't die for your past forgiveness only. Praise God for those past sins forgiven. Or for your future resurrection, which gives us hope. But he also died for everything that you're facing today. So good. It's easy to forget that God lives inside you in the powerful, convicting, protecting, and enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. So, God has ordained that we should gather again and again and again and again to remember again and again who we are and what we have been given. The church is a tool of grace a vehicle for remembering that so that we may celebrate and grow in Christ. Don't forget. When you gather together, don't forget. When you come together on the Lord's Day in your community groups, don't forget. And lastly, very quickly, we need to live intentionally regarding community building and taking a step deeper into the light of Christ. You know, what am I going to do in response to, to Deuteronomy 6? How am I going to take a step further into the light? Uh, there's a book that's just been released, written by a senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass. Ben Sass is a good thinker, uh, and he is a very committed Christian, a wonderful young man. But he's written a book entitled Them, why we hate each other and how to heal. This is what he says in part. I'll give you two quotes. His thesis is that loneliness in America is an epidemic that produces loneliness literature, or sociological and medical findings about the effects of loneliness on individuals, brains and bodies and communities. Senator Sass says, quote, there is a growing consensus that loneliness not obesity or cancer or heart disease is the nation's number one health crisis. Persistent loneliness reduces average longevity more than twice as much as does heavy drinking and more than three times as much as obesity, which often is the consequence of loneliness. Research demonstrates that loneliness is as physically dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and contributes to cognitive decline, including more rapid advance of Alzheimer's disease. He writes, quote, we were literally dying of despair of the failure to fill the hole millions of Americans fill in their lives. God made us for community. And if I'm to avoid the meltdown of Solomon, I must live intentionally in community with people that are thinking well and living well and wanting to honor Christ in the midst of their brokenness and pain that we all have. I've got to be with God's people. 
I've got to think well. I've got to understand that we serve a living God who desires for us to flourish under his hand, church. Man, it's good stuff. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we read Ecclesiastes and really our hearts break over a man who was told to not do one thing and did a 180 and did exactly what you told him not to do. And he reaped the consequences of bad decisions, which in his life, because of his power and authority, included sanctioning ritual prostitution and child sacrifice, which is an abomination to you. And his heart grew cold and distant and bitter and cynical. And we don't want that. And there are some who are going to be here today who, who are, they're, they're there. They're in that point of cynicism. And I, I pray they see the, the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. And, and it would lead them to know the Savior. And I pray for those of us who named the name of Jesus. That, Lord, we would live with thoughts that are really ponderous about the greatness of God that we would kick against the creeping Epicureanism that pumps out its message everywhere in our culture. That we would not lose the hope of heaven. That we would grow old gracefully and walk through very difficult times with a belief that God in some way that we don't understand can bring good out of this muck. Um, All those things the Epicurean does not get. And because of that, I pray that we would not demand from each other things that we were never meant to bear. So, Lord, teach us, lead us. Let us live intentionally. Let us embrace life and be very, very glad, knowing that everything that we will experience today, whether it's the embrace of a friend, the laughter of a child, the joy of a good meal, the cool air, the sunshine on our face is a foretaste of something that's going to be wild beyond words. And because of that, may we go forward. May we live for you. May we live in such a way this week that our joy and our embrace of life will be a startling statement to people around us who are are chasing the Epicurean dream and they will see our good works and eventually glorify our Father in heaven as we speak the gospel. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.